Welcome to the fourth episode in the Why Believe the Bible series, taught by my awesome dad, Harry Schaefer. The underlying premise of the series is that we can verify the truth of the Bible by looking to outside sources, such as the historical record, to see if what's in the historical record aligns with scripture. And we find that it does. In episodes 66, 67, and 68, we looked at ways prophetic prophecies and archaeological findings prove the Bible is true. Today, we'll look into an interesting outside source by exploring the realm of medicine. To explain, I'm handing the microphone back over to my dad as he continues to teach from his dining room table. Here's Harry! Another area, completely different, that we might explore for the true statements versus false statements is the area of medicine. Not what you think of when you think of the Bible. And of course, the Bible is not and never claims to be a medical textbook. But if the Bible is true then any time the text touches on the area of medicine, we would expect every statement made about it to be true. We would not expect to find any medical errors or any harmful prescriptions in the Bible. In the ancient world, the Egyptians were considered to be above all others in the world the best doctors. They had the most medical knowledge and were foremost in their medical practice. The Persian king Darius, according to the ancient historian Herodotus, always kept several Egyptian doctors with him wherever he went because they had the reputation of being the best in the world. So what was Egyptian medicine like? A number of documents have survived, but one of the foremost sources was discovered in 1874 and is called the Ebers Papyrus. It contains 811 prescriptions to heal or prevent disease. A few of these would actually have been helpful, but many were disgusting and harmful. An example, the prescription in this papyrus, this listed, it says this is what's to be used to, quote, draw out splinters from the flesh. Okay, so you get a splinter, this is what you put on it. Worm blood, mole, and donkey dung. The medicine to help heal skin diseases included cat dung, dog dung, and hog's tooth. While the Egyptian medicine may have had occasional benefit, the many harmful remedies would destroy all trust in it in modern times. The Bible does not have a list of hundreds of prescriptions like that. We wouldn't expect it to. But it does have, especially in the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch, a number of rules or laws about sanitation, quarantine, and other medical procedures that the Israelites were to follow. These were unlike anything the other ancient civilizations knew or practiced. None of the harmful remedies or ingredients are found in the Bible. In fact, the Pentateuch demonstrates an understanding of germs and disease that was not known by modern medicine until relatively recently. There's an example of this given in an article from Apologetics Press written by Eric Lyons and Kyle Buck. And the, uh, the example is from modern time, relatively modern times, 1847, when this one doctor seemingly discovered something about germs. And this is a true story of a guy, an obstetrician named Ignaz Simmelweis. And I'm going to read from the article. It says he was the director of a hospital ward in Vienna, Austria. Many pregnant women checked into his ward, but 10 to 18% of these women never checked out. About one out of every six that received treatment in Semmelweis' ward died of labor fever. That's what they called it in those days. They didn't know what else to call it. Autopsies revealed pus under their skin, in their chest cavities, in their eye sockets, etc. Semmelweis was distraught over the mortality rate in his ward 
and other hospital wards like it all over Europe, in, in Australia, the Americas, Britain, Ireland, and practically every other nation that had established a hospital suffered a similar mortality rate. If a woman delivered a baby using a midwife, then the death rate fell to only about 3%. Yet, if she chose to use the most advanced medical knowledge and facilities of the day, her chance of dying skyrocketed immensely. Semmelweis had tried everything to curb the carnage. He turned all the women on their sides and hoped that the death rate would drop, but with no results. He thought maybe the bell that the priest rang in the wee hours of the morning scared the women. So he made the priest enter silently, yet without any drop in death rates. As he contemplated his dilemma, he watched young medical students perform their routine tasks. Each day, the students would conduct autopsies on the dead mothers. Then they would rinse their hands in a bowl of bloody water, wipe them off on a shared dirty towel, and immediately begin internal examination of the still-living women. Medical doctor and historian Sherwin Newland commented concerning the practice, because there seemed no reason for them to wash their hands except superficially or change their clothing before coming to the first division, they did neither. As a 21st century observer, one is appalled to think that such practices actually took place in institutes of what at the time was modern technology. What doctor in his right mind would touch a dead person and then perform examinations on living patients without first employing some sort of minimal hygienic practices intended to kill germs. But to Europeans in the middle 19th century, germs were virtually a foreign concept. Semmelweis then ordered everyone in his ward to wash his or her hands thoroughly in a chlorine solution after every examination. In three months, the death rate fell from 18% to 1%. Semmelweis had made a groundbreaking discovery. Or had he? Almost 3,300 years before Semmelweis lived, Moses had written, He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day, and on the seventh day, then he will be clean. But he, if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he shall not be clean. Germs were no new discovery in 1847. The biblical text recorded measures to check their spread as far back as about 1500 BC. So that's that article, uh, how germs were discovered. Well, at least the result of them was discovered. Now, when Moses wrote in Numbers 19 that anyone who touches a dead body had to wash himself, he didn't mean just to wash with plain water. He had to wash with what was called the water of separation, which was be found in verse 9 of chapter 19. The recipe for this is given in verses 5 and 6, which is really interesting. The ingredients are this, ashes of a young cow, cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet. Now, at first glance, this might seem like some really weird mixture of stuff that had no practical value. But in, reva- in reality, it really is a recipe to produce an antibacterial soap. Again, I want to go back to the article and read two paragraphs. Is when we look at the ingredients individually, we begin to see the value of each. First, consider the use of ashes. The chemical known as lye is one of the main ingredients in many soaps today. In fact, Lye in high concentration is very caustic and irritating to the skin. In more diluted concentrations, it can be used as an excellent exfoliant and cleansing agent. Various lye soap recipes reveal that to obtain lye, water is often poured through ashes. The water retrieved from pouring it through the ashes contains a concentration of the chemical. Moses instructed Israelites to prepare a mixture that would have included lye mixed in a diluted solution which would have been ideal for stopping the spread of germs. 
What about the specific ingredients for the water of purification? Hyssop contains the antiseptic thymol, the same ingredient that we find today in some brands of mouthwash. Cedar wood has long been used for storage cabinets because of its ability to repel insects and prevent decay. In oil form, applied to humans, it is an antiseptic astringent expectorant, which removes mucus from respiratory system, antifungal, sedative, and insecticide. The Israelites were instructed to toss into the mix scarlet, which most likely was scarlet wool. Adding wool fibers to the concoction would have made the mixture the ancient equivalent of lava soap. The Bible gives ancient Israel a recipe for an antibacterial soap thousands of years before anyone even had any concept at all of anything like bacteria. Now, the Israelites didn't know anything about germs either. They didn't know what it was for, but they used the water of purification because their law demanded it, not knowing that by doing so, they were protecting themselves from the possibility of infectious diseases. The true statements of the Bible were meant to not only be evidence for its truthfulness, but also, on a very practical level, help save the lives of the Israelites and any other people who would read and obey the Bible. Another example in the medical field from the Bible is the concept of quarantine. When the Bible was written, the idea of contagious diseases was completely unknown in the world. Even the Egyptians didn't know about quarantine, as advanced as they thought they were. The book of Leviticus lists quite a number of diseases by their symptoms, with instructions to separate anybody displaying these symptoms from healthy people until they would be determined to be well. One of these diseases was leprosy. Leviticus 13 gives detailed instructions to lepers. And this is verses 45 and 46 of Leviticus 13. And the leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent and his head bare, and he shall put a covering upon his upper lip and shall cry, Unclean, unclean, all the days wherein the plague shall be in him, he shall be defiled. He is unclean. He shall dwell alone without the camp shall his habitation be. So a leper would be easily identified by his torn clothing, his bare head, the covering over, an, over, over his upper lip. Now, any covering over an upper lip would hang over the mouth and would prevent spit and spray from freely entering the air, much like we cover our mouths when we cough. This would have been an early version of wearing a mask. When anybody got near the leper, he had to warn them by saying, unclean, unclean. Beside these things, the leper was quarantined by having to live outside the camp or the town or the city or whatever it was where they were living. All of this was commanded by the Bible in order to uh, separate sufferers of highly infectious and dangerous diseases such as leprosy from the healthy population. This concept and practice of quarantine was unique to the Bible in Israel from about 1500 BC and for many centuries until medical knowledge caught up to the truth of the Bible. Roderick McGrew writes in the Encyclopedia of Medical History, and again, I'm going to quote, he's quoted in the article, and I'm going to quote a sentence from him. Roderick McGrew writes in the Encyclopedia of Medical History, the idea of contagion was foreign to the classic medical tradition and found no place in the voluminous Hippocratic writings. The Old Testament, however, is a rich source for contagionist sentiment especially in regard to leprosy and venereal disease. Here again, the Bible displays accurate medical and scientific knowledge that goes beyond any human knowledge or practice in the world at the time of its writing. Soap? Masks? Quarantines? 
familiar things, especially for all of us who lived through the COVID shutdowns and mask mandates. Clearly God knew what he was doing when he gave the law to Moses. Every detail of every law had a purpose, and many of those purposes were to keep the people healthy and protect them from germs they didn't even understand. So cool the medical treatments and medical practices from the time of Moses are in alignment with modern medical practices of today. So if you haven't listened to the other episodes in this series, check them out now. The links to 66, 67, and 68 are in the show notes for your listening pleasure. Then finish up with the grand finale of episode 70, where we'll look at some recent and important archaeological discoveries that prove the Bible is true. If you enjoyed today's episode, the best way you can thank me is by leaving a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. Not only will it help me know what you're thinking, but it will also help others on a quest to write a novel discover the show. After you leave that review, I invite you to click on over to authordkdrake.com. There you can become a DK Drake Insider, secure your free starter library, and access all the books from the Dragonstalker Bloodline Saga that are available for sale on Amazon. In the meantime, I dare you not to dream of dragons tonight. <laughs>